Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. My guest this week is the geologist Alden Goodwin, and we're going to sit down today and talk a little science in an episode I'm calling Space Rocks and Game Theory. I don't understand. What's the concept? You just sit around and just talk to people. Yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, so the podcast stupid. is literally called All We Do Is Talk. <laughs> we're like, no, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah. Stop. Stop laughing at us. Stop. Mm-hmm. Start laughing with us. Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, let's kick right off. Um, one thing that I had forgotten that I wanted to talk about, which actually was what we were talking about earlier, sort of, was game theory. And I remember I proposed this a little bit in the in our Discord chat um, about how we were all, and actually, we, and literally earlier, we were just talking about my, my way that I play games and what you play games. And yeah. I feel like a lot of my being a gamer... Growing up with both tabletop games, fantasy games like Dungeons and Dragons, video games, all those types of games, they really informed a lot of the way that I think, you know, in a lot of ways. My analysis, my strategy, and I know that you are a very good, you have a very good strategic mind for a lot of different types of games. And I was interested to know what, how much of that you think was like, uh, has translated over into your life, like coming from the gaming world. Well, yeah, and what's the interplay between that, right? Right. Is it um, useful? First of all, do you think it is useful? It's hard to quantify, right? Right. But I, I mean, I, it's shaped who I am in a lot of ways. I think, mm-hmm. um, because it's hard to say that it it doesn't like play a, a big role in right. who I am. But at the same time, there's a lot of things in game theory that I didn't really understand why I didn't incorporate them into my life Mm -hmm. until I I was introduced to the concept of the infinite game versus the finite game. So what is that? What is that concept? It's the idea that if the game is finite, every action taken in that game, no matter how cutthroat it is, those repercussions won't carry over to the next game. And that's the finite game. Right, that's the finite okay. game, right? So your only objective is to win. You can be as cruel to your opponents as possible. In fact, usually like you can be as underhanded as you want, whatever, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Everything in the pursuit of the win for that game. But in the infinite game, like in politics, for instance, where you're trying to run a country for many years on end, um, you have to incorporate the idea that every action that you take will have a reaction to it. Right. Outside of because that game never ends, you'll never wash your hands completely of any action that you take. Right. There's always a new game, or there's always a different game that has been spawned from whatever you you thought was the game. (laughs) You want to win the short-term games. Mm -hmm. Some of the actions are the same, but you have to think about like, okay, do we come to an agreement to just not use some actions because the overall outcome of those actions is so detrimental? down the road or like you have to so you have to establish a a sort of vision for what you want yourself to be and who who you want yourself to be so who i am in a game and especially a finite like board game is going to be very different from the person i am day to day because it ends right because the game ends the game yeah but i want to build and contribute to a better infinite like infinite community infinite you know, effects of my person. Yeah, that is actually, I think, you know, it's interesting that you bring that up because I I don't think I conceive of that well enough in terms of, I would assume that a lot of people who feel like they're good at games, like video games, would then take the same uh, sort of metric of success in the way that they think about strategy from that and then apply it to life and not see the difference. There probably is a really really important skill in seeing the difference between that there is no just sort of you know the battle royale doesn't just end you know there's no time limit that just is done in an hour or whatever you know like everything always evolves into something more um i don't i wonder how many do you think that a lot of gamers get that or do you think a lot of gamers once they find success in their own abilities you know like confidence Mm -hmm. in gaming do you think that they can find that separation and like see the value in knowing that life isn't like that or do you think that they just port that whole sort of mentality into the way that they try to treat everything else in their life i think it depends on the gaming group um 
You mean like like format, like platform, like tabletop versus Halo or something? Right. Yeah. So if you're like in a, a first person shooter, the groups tend to be pretty adversarial and aggressive, and they don't because of the the hour long or thirty minute long you know game, it, and then you move on to the next group. There isn't a lot of rollover between your actions in one game to the next and how cruel you are to your your teammates necessarily but then if you get maybe into a competitive league where you're trying to work within a teammate group i i think that dynamic changes a lot Mm -hmm. like how can you be a good teammate is it a team game at all changes how you how you succeed but i think yeah a lot of people have that that bias formed from their success or lack of success um, in any system. Mm-hmm. We carry that to the next thing. We, we as people, I think it's been my experience personally and I and from what I've witnessed in others, we struggle with that. I think a lot of you see a lot of gamers that will kind of bring that into other environments. And I think in business, and that kind of quarterly quarterly reporting thing, mm-hmm. you really benefit from that short-term finite game thing. How do you do on that one deal? How do you do within the quarter? How do you do within maybe a year? Right, with those short-term goals, right. those finite games. But how do you build a company that doesn't last, that lasts longer than that and, and goes forward and values like the, the community and the culture that you create? And evolves too. And evolves, right. right. How, do, how can you evolve and not burn yourself out. Um, like, you know, for instance, you deal with maybe climate issues or something like that. Mm-hmm. Energy companies now pushing, to, like which energy companies are actually pushing to adapt to a new paradigm shift for, away from fossil fuels? Right. Are they going even trying, right? Mm-hmm. Those are interesting um, ways that game theory comes into play in that right. regard. Yeah, I guess that kind of ties into something we were talking about earlier that I was saying about the, I'm surprised that a lot of the, if if there is a part of a personality in people in sort of like big oil and big fossil fuel industries, if part of their personality is seeking power, like I'm surprised they haven't recognized that the future power is going to be renewable energy since mm-hmm. their energy system is going to... Well, they've succeeded, so... You know, whoever has yeah. the best renewable energy system will be the most powerful because fossil fuels will run out, so those people won't be powerful. And yet, they don't seem to be investing in it. Well, the deck's still working. They mm-hmm. have all the cards. They're finite right. gamers. They're Halo players. Right, they, they don't <laughs> see the, the game changing. And, right. and I mean, that you deal with some political stuff with that, too, of like when we called the... that we won the Cold War. Mm-hmm. We stopped playing the infinite game. I mean, I, that's not my idea. That's that's something I picked up from some TED Talk or something like that, mm-hmm. basically on this topic. But it's the idea that in politics you have to every action you take as a as a country as a politician, you have to set yourself up for more actions later on down the line. That is right. your only objective in a finite game is to give yourself more options later, because. Right. It, your your objective is to keep being able to make the next move and that's it right do you think there's a lot of tie over because i i know that i certainly would assume that there's a tie over in military for gamers because mm-hmm. you know a lot of games are even military like mm-hmm. the risk you know that's literally just conquering you know a lot of these games are just sort of battles and i've always assumed that like good generals or good tacticians in the military probably would be great gamers they'd probably slay it settlers of Catan, mm-hmm. maybe um or at least they would do really good at the games where you have like battles, you know, um, grow an army, manage your resources, invade, take as much land, right. um, kind of spread. But I've wondered if you think that it ties into the politics at all. Do you think politicians would be good gamers? Because they do That's think about their whole career yeah. to a certain degree. I mean, I know some people say they're fixated on like the next election cycle, which I also think is true. Well, they exist within a finite cycle in an infinite game. <laughs> yeah. Right. They, yeah, they that's that's exactly right. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, and I think that it's that compromise can. Yeah, I think that 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 is both good and bad in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. It, you know, um, in that 
it makes them very fixated and, and have to divert a lot of energy to the finite game to keep making actions. You have to win the next finite cycle. Right. Right? Yeah. At the same time, that ha- that serves a purpose of keeping them a little more honest mm-hmm. because they have to be able to present themselves again. They're not elected for life. They can't devote themselves wholly to whatever their own interests are because they have to win the approval of the their you know constituents right um what's the balance of that these days right because you can divert divert a lot of resources towards that next election cycle now right and And a lot of them seem to right i don't know if that's true but it does seem like they divert a lot of people at least would would critically say they divert like most of their resources to the next election cycle right yeah and the idea of people diverting most almost entirely all of their resources to get elected and then what they do is they delegate tasks out Mm -hmm. to their teams to actually enact change within washington to when they're actually policymakers right and they pick the people that most align themselves with their their ideology so that it you know it works um it can work i'm not sure that's a bad thing entirely you know it's hard to say right um do you think it would be better if some like finer details that are probably lost um lost in hiring somebody else to try and fulfill your vision right do you think it would be here's an interesting question though do you think it would be better in your opinion to have because i know a lot of people think like oh the solution is to have term limits right so they're not always playing these little this like this infinite game of finite games yeah but also, the f- another option would be to have a longer term, too. So there wasn't as much of the small election cycle in between. Like, what if, what, do you think it would be more efficient if, like, for instance, president got elected and just served eight years and then was just never president again? Right. Like, as soon as they got it, they just would knuckle down for the eight years and never worry about the next election thing. Right. Yeah. Have that time period to allow them to really sink their teeth in. I think we would probably see... all conjecture right right Uh, it was very theoretical right i i think a vote of no confidence would have to be instated with that too because if somebody turned out to be absolutely incompetent we would see more people wanting to vote them out something more along the lines of parliament um Hmm. right right so uh, instead of having to go through like an impeachment process to do it just be like no they're not doing their job take them out but it would allow them to like really but you know right bite in and and, and uh and deal with bigger issues more complex issues right and the same could be said probably for the house mm-hmm. two years is barely enough time to get your your feet underneath of you is it just two years yeah for the house of representatives mm-hmm. wow i thought it was I don't know. six for senators senators Right. I knew Senators was six. I thought for sure the House of Congress, the House of Representatives was more, but I'm pretty sure it's ten. We'll, we should I know that, that there's I know that there's an election every two years, right? That's how they stagger. Right. There's always like someone there's some slice of it. Yeah. Um see this is why I wish I was Joe Rogan's podcast where I could just be like, Hey Jamie, like right. you know, yeah. Google like the that, thing. Like that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's down the line. <laughs> well yeah. Um interesting. Because I, I do think that the idea of never reelecting, like just being able to serve one term, doesn't seem like a good solution to me because then there's no incentive to care about the job that you do because there's no way you could do it again. So, like, why wouldn't you just phone it in for eight years? Because, like, what's the, you know, why would you care about your constituency because they're not, you don't get anything. Re- I mean, other than a job well done, you don't get anything, you know, from doing a really good job. Right. And you could limit it to like two terms, three terms, something like that. Right. Or you could well, say I think that's what they want. One right? longer term. And so for president, for Senate, for House. Right. Um, I think that would probably be a solid option. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think we definitely could use some reform or, or reassessment in that area. Right. Because, yeah, as it stands, we, we see a problem in business. We see a problem in, in politics. I think our day-to-day life of just a smaller and smaller uh, vision of the future. Right. Um, I mean, that's something that I, you know, 
I think having studied some paleontology as well and like geologic history, we don't seem to grasp how fast things change over for ourselves mm-hmm. and how long things tended to take in history. Right. So like even dealing with like environmental issues and stuff like that and, and the rate of dilution and right. uh, sequestration, like trapping carbon and whatnot. We struggle to conceptualize like how our place in the universe in part because we, you know, we, we struggle to conceptualize things that are larger, like our larger on larger exponential scales. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, even, I mean, in that kind of, I mean, environmental for sure, but even just all research is kind of constrained to that, you know, like mm-hmm. even, even a lot of modern research, like if you were, if you were trying to test if contact lenses were good, you know, were an okay idea for eyeballs, you'd still have to do like 30 years of testing because you need to see what it's like for someone right. spending a good chunk of their adult life using them. So I assume yeah. that when you have those, even those timelines, like that's such a long period of time before you can even decide whether or not a product is okay for consumer use. Yeah. And that's, and that's even just like in a, in a more like health science consumer idea. Mm-hmm. And then you have like these environmental things where, you know, you won't even what, like what's the shortest amount of time a tree will break down in like. Right. And when you, when you look long at time. things like nanotechnology. Right. And how known behaviors of substances differ greatly at nanoscale Mm. um and that not all of them have been particularly well studied before being put into like products Mm -hmm. so like yeah it includes gold in it that should be inert right Mm -hmm. not so much at the nanoscale really yeah um and And nanotech is really something i'm just like i and it taking your word for it it is less inert i should say okay it, i mean it's still it behaves di- pretty differently though and the way things stay in suspension in fluids and, and and consequently how they kind of travel through a system um because it takes so little energy to keep them you know right active um yeah so nanoscale stuff like that's a that's a particular area of scaling down as opposed to scaling up right <laughs> where the challenge yeah. um, is encountered and that's something that we still are studying and science moves slowly compared to policy right that's always going to be an issue right um, that's something that I, I've recently been dealing with with some friends of like you know how do you be like how do you help like groups understand something when they want an answer in three months and the research just isn't there. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, again, you don't need the 30 years. Right. <laughs> you're, like, yeah, yeah. you're like, what you want to know, I won't know for <laughs> decades. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know yeah. what my hands are tied. <laughs> you know, yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. I know your deadline is three months, but that's not <laughs> right. I can't, I can't know how something affects something over 20 years in less than 20 years. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's exactly. just, that's just how it works. <laughs> and, are you willing to then put up the money to research that right for a 20 year project? So there's only a, there are some long-term studies out there, but there aren't nearly enough of them right. to get a really good picture of it. And case studies always have their flaws. Yeah. Right. Um, like we've got watershed things. I think there's an easement up in it's the Northeast somewhere where it's basically a basin drainage basin and it's just studying all the chemistry of the soil and the plants that are growing there and everything and the output and the sedimentation mm-hmm. uh, the effects on like so it's very very much a contained system mm-hmm. in a lot of ways except for the atmospheric in- input um and you get some really interesting studies on soil chemistry and metals and how they're trapped by clays mm-hmm. and like the ionic load and, and how it buffers acidic rain or regenerates after like more uh, restrictions are put on companies and how, you know, their output Interesting. and the regulation there. Um, but we don't have a lot of those because those require a significant amount of money and, you know, Time. Time of 
researchers being present. And, you know, these are people who are really highly trained, too. Right. You know, people who got their PhDs. Uh, probably, you know, many people to the team that have to have that, that level of expertise. That level of education, too. Yeah. Right, which is a big um, investment. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> and that's a problem in geology is that, and not necessarily a problem, but it's just that it's part of the, the thing of the nature of the beast in that you have to have studied it for a long time to really understand it. Right. Because a lot of these processes operate on a scale that is so much larger than the human lifespan. Yeah. So you have to be around and see them shift and to kind of temper that bias that we form of like, okay, yeah, I saw that happen as a kid, but is that really the way it is all the time? You know, or I lived there for three years and it didn't happen once. And oh, you can't say, oh, it doesn't happen. Right. <laughs> you know? Um, so trying to find ways to study the processes that shape the earth over a long period of time there's a there's a lot of methods that are used out there that are really good and like but it takes a while to come up with them mm-hmm. um, and it then takes a while to observe them and yeah. verify that they're actually effective yeah right I mean it's a lifelong career it's yeah. got to be it has for that to. type of thing yeah for I mean for most environmental sciences and mm-hmm. I'm assuming geology probably also people who study ecosystems i'm assuming is probably similar i'm sure that i'm sure that a lot of people who study like i know there's so much trouble with coral right coral like dying and all this you know and i'm sure it's because there's not a lot of there hasn't been good long studies of it you know like who's paying for those like long in-depth right career defining coral studies it's probably hard a lot harder to although we we do get more of that i mean there's some some issues some people really care about right Mm mm-hmm and coral is one of those because people love their reefs. It's pretty. And they love going snorkeling. <laughs> yeah. If the thing's pretty. If it's um, part of the tourism industry. Not everyone looks at a, a basalt and says, hey, that's a lovely, yeah. lovely rock right yeah. there. What's in that? Not everyone's like, wow, look at this clay. Yeah, look at this clay. <laughs> look at this clay compared to that clay. <laughs> so to be fair, it wasn't until after I graduated <laughs> college mm-hmm. that I then like had the time to go back home and look at how clays acted not just on their own and like the surface chemistry and all that's actually really interesting from a geochemistry standpoint Mm -hmm. like sure that was kind of a nice abstract when i was studying but once you go back to a place that you know and you see the ecological interplay of geomorphology and clays and the soil profile like that and the drainage in that area and then you travel to another place you know fairly well and you see a different clay acting a very different way with very different plants adapting to it Hmm. or organisms adapting to it and like a stream bank Mm -hmm. that's some really cool stuff right there and i mean to me that that was what drew me to geology was the fact that it's, it's everywhere it's the canvas on which we live right so right I feel like I, it's it's hard yeah. to to find a like a sort of a similar, um, a similar experience because I feel like it's basically like you're you're seeing underneath right now you know why the surface mm-hmm. looks and acts and like appears a certain way because of what must be going on underneath right yeah that's sort of and is it more I mean is it just because you can you can focus on it more or is it just more present like it's like it almost like snags your attention more now things that you're like oh I bet that's you know like that's different like this must be a different yeah. you know the soil here must just have a different thing because these plants are usually growing a certain way right, right. Or a certain height when they're in the shade or something and then you're like well that must mean that the soil composition is different i think you start thinking of it as smaller pieces because you're able to talk or like you're able to identify the different pieces a little bit better hmm. and and so because you there are different pieces you can start identifying how those pieces interact a little bit more Right. Right. So going back to like games and stuff like that, you know how those pieces act on the board in relation to each other. And they're playing that infinite game. They're simply trying to survive, continue that infinite game. Right. And I think that's why that idea stuck so much with me is, you know, I was in, I was studying geology at the time that I heard that theory. Right. Um, and studying evolutionary theory at the same time. Things are simply trying to keep going. 
<laughs> right? And sometimes <laughs> they do their best and the world changes so dramatically that the rug is just ripped out from underneath them. Mm-hmm. They're really well adapted to their environment and then that environment disappears. Yeah. Right? Disappears, but in geology terms means like a, a, a half a million years or more. more. Well, 20 million yeah. years. In, in a blink of an eye, it might be... <laughs> yeah. uh, several thousand to a million years yeah. Yeah. <laughs> millions of years but to the earth to the to the general well, the overall timeline yeah think of an eye you look at the the end permian extension where it, i think it was it was maybe 10 20 thousand years i think i go from now. on that one but it it is it is in the order of magnitude of thousands of years right in which it this ecological change. Oh, you mean the extinction took over or took place over twenty thousand years, right? Ish. Okay. But in that's a mass extinction thing, cascading failures within a system. Right. But that was pretty rapid, by yeah. comparison, and I think it was eighty-five percent of all genuses died. Ninety. Wow. Some percent of all species died off. Um, and this is wait, wait, which one was this? Because there's been a few different mass yeah. extinction events, right? What, what, which one are you talking about specifically? So the end Permian extinction end is Permian. where we lost the trilobites. Trilobites, not the yeah. trilobites. So this is also what gave rise to things like the dinosaurs and um, the. The reptiles, well, the reptiles as we saw them later, mm-hmm. they they really succeeded in the early, um, earlier periods there afterwards. Wait, are the trilobites like the armored? Am I thinking of the right thing? They're like the really small creatures that are sort of yeah, look kind of with the hammerhead thing. They have really diverse eye structures, which was really cool. So some they're kind of like stocks, some of them retracted. They're like the horseshoe crab looking, but like on a small level. Yes. Right. Yeah. yeah. They kind okay. of look like that. Not, I don't think they're all that related. But no, could be wrong. they're not just like the only trilobites that survived. <laughs> they um, look, they look, they look kind old of school. Similar, but they yeah, when I, be very different. when you see a horseshoe crab, you're kind of like, this could have been around always. You know, like, this right. looks it, like the well, oldest it was one creature. Of the few things to make it through. Right. I at least that's what I remember is that they survived through that extinction. Yeah. Um. They but were the, they were the one percent. Right. <laughs> the one percent. <laughs> demonize the one percent of the and permian extinction yeah (laughs) occupy cambria (laughs) gosh um wow that's it's amazing to think about that um so here's here's a question though when i hear people say i don't know if you know the answer to this but when people say like 80 percent of all the genus genuses species whatever Mm -hmm. died out does that mean that now we're still sort of missing 80 percent of the total genuses that could have been around or like do we have has it flourished again now are we well, back up right. like at the what's the like number the actual so there's gosh, i don't know who who the quote's from but uh this nature abhors a vacuum mm-hmm. and so you know in biology they'll call it like a niche a niche is opened right mm-hmm. so once that area once that species collapses others will adapt to take its space mm-hmm. and that could be a generalist which is generally good at a lot of different things it just incorporates one of those aspects into itself mm-hmm. or if it's there's a vacuum there another species makes it in there and they have no other competition but that's simply the best thing for them to do to survive that area they will have they'll probably take up similar mechanisms to adapt to that space mm-hmm. within what's allowed to their own like what were they doing that allowed them to occupy that space initially and then they'll kind of form form through trial and error right mm-hmm. of just what can survive in that space right to fill that space again right um, well, but like, what if, are we... if there's energy benefits if you know if there's a benefit to reproduce in a certain way if there's a benefit to gain food in a certain way right um or you know live a short time or a long time some you know sometimes that's Wait, but are we talking about like you know, bacteria like when because i know that like on the planet right people think of genuses species they think of like maybe bugs plants and animals mm-hmm. 
Um, but obviously there's like thousands, there's like right. mi millions or whatever. Microscopic or microscopic. Yeah, there's all these microscopic things. So like if during these times of mass extinction, if you lost like, you know, 50, I mean, you could lose like 50,000 species of bacteria. And you right. would, but would that, is that what we like, is it just like moss? Is that the only thing that's left during these times? Or? So these are things that, is it the big animals? We say that we, we say things that we have fossil records of. Okay. Right. So there's a certain bias there. So that sounds macro, right? Yeah. Big. Yeah, I mean, a fossil we don't, means... We don't fossilize bacteria well. Right. Um, <laughs> is, that, is that a thing at all? So soft body versus hard right. body. Um, oh, interesting. Or plant species going extinct. Or coral species going extinct. Coral fossilizes incredibly well. We've got a lot of corals throughout history. But what about things um, like plants? Like leafy plants or roots? They Wood fossilizes surprisingly well. Okay. Um, so so they that is part fungus, of that whole... Fungus? Nah, depends on the fungus. Okay. But they do kind of well. Chitin actually does a fairly good job of uh, permineralizing or uh, leaving casts and stuff like that. Um, it can, I should say. Right. Uh, but they also tend to grow in areas where you'll get um, kind of burial, rapid burial, because they live near depositional zones and like swamps and stuff like that. Right. Um, okay. At, or around lakes mm -hmm. i mean suddenly becoming sediment yeah. how an organism is fossilized is a is a pretty unique thing and the biases that are that we have to kind of check ourselves for right. in like geologic history and how we think of like systems occurring yeah um because you know these are things it's a survivor's bias uh is what that's called right where it's the only thing that you see right you so you assume so, it's the only thing that was. Right. Or if you check it and you say, okay, if we assume this was the case here, it is really just a case study of here. Right. Right. Oh, trying not to expand it. Trying not to expand it or realizing, okay, if we see this here, what, mm, by modern analogs, what would we expect in the areas around it? Mm. Right. Right. And we can do some of that. But we have to be cautious when we say that we have to cite our... Um, cite our biases going in and that's part of science is just being aware of your assumptions you have to you really have to be aware of your assumptions yeah that's a good thing to think about I don't think I've ever really no I, I definitely never before thought about how when things are according to the fossil record that they are only according to things that there can be fossils of like that I mean that makes total yeah. sense and I never really thought about it like yeah. there's a lot of stuff that you probably can't you're missing probably a yeah. pretty big chunk of any sort of understanding of flora and fauna on the planet at any particular time in history if it just didn't fossilize or couldn't the, those lakes that i was talking about are mm -hmm. referred to as lagerstattens <laughs> i might be butchering that word butchering that word i think it sounds good to me correct lagerstatten which basically it it means mother load mother load cool. um but in those really low energy environments like lakes um you get these amazing fossils and you get some areas in like lagoons and stuff like that, although that's harder because you get storm influxes and waves rising up, hurricanes, whatnot. Mm -hmm. But we have occurrences where we get, I think there's only a handful of these, if, if not just like one of them. But we, we finally got a, I think yeah, it might just be a somewhat recent discovery of a fossilized jellyfish. Wow. Right? That seems like a pretty soft body. Yeah, that, very yeah. soft body. It's jelly. <laughs> Basically, it's a carbon imprint. Yeah. Um, it's named after yeah. a spread. So, <laughs> pretty soft. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, we've had freshwater jellyfish. So, it may be what it was. I haven't read the paper on that one. Right. But, we also have some lager shotons, which, kind of a misuse of the word, but also maybe not. Where we get some really incredible fossil, you know, fossilized um, soft body organisms from like the Cambrian explosion. Wow. The Burgess Shale is one of them. There's another one in China that it's just chock full of these amazing organisms that we'd never seen before and parts of organisms right. that we'd never seen before because they were soft bodied. Right. So. Is there a, like, and, and I don't know this because um, I assume in, in a lot of scientific records in history, there was like a division of like east west right like there was mm -hmm. all these like as soon as as soon as the cultures from 
the West and the East like got better at talking, they just like realized that they had all of this, <laughs> mm-hmm. all these big contributions. Has there been a lot of stuff? Because I know that um, has there been a lot of stuff in in like China and different parts of Asia that have been like really kind of game changers for a lot of like because I think when I think fossils. of yeah when I yeah. think of archaeology I think of like it as more of a western or a oh man maybe that's just a stupid bias but I think of it as like more of a western thing well I mean I, I don't think it's a stupid bias, it's a bias and stuff like that. to be sure yeah. right but, but I think of like surprising we if we think about science like how is the archaeology paleontology world in the east is it big like has it always been big has it been like a big kind of are there like famous archaeologists and paleontologists discovering things in places like Thailand and China and I, I know it's a big thing in China right now and I think right. I've I've heard hints of people um kind of getting to the point of it seems to be a growing thing of being kind of like the bone wars Ooh. in the American West. Interesting. Wait, in within Chinese Within Chinese the culture, Chinese within there, because okay. they have this motherload discovery, right? That they're going out there and they're just going through material with right. sledgehammers and stuff like that. They're just, just going for glory. They're going for the best specimen, not looking for the the crappy ones because they right. just don't have the manpower. Oh, but they do. <laughs> China, China's got some manpower, <laughs> right? But if you think about you know the number of people that study and specialize in any given field. Oh yeah. At any point, point in time, like especially with like PhD levels and stuff like that, it's maybe like a thousand people might specialize in one thing. Right. And yeah, I mean they've got a lot of population, um, but how much resources are they really willing to divert to that? Mm-hmm. If it's not in the interest of actual expansion, if it's just purely academic. Right. I mean that's always something that science struggles with. How do you how do you make this thing important to people enough that they're willing to spend the money? To pay your bills. Well, I feel right. like it's just got to be prowess. You know what I mean? Like, wouldn't they be interested in like, I mean, I, I feel like in the same way that an area that may have never been known for wine might want to invest in that, you know, there might be a, a culture that grows because they want to be known as that. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to know if maybe that would be enough. There would be like this prowess of like, they want to be on the map as like, I think we're seeing the best archaeologists. Yeah. So, to be known for it. Right. Like the leaders be like, man. And if got a lot of archaeology paleontology now they've got a lot of that too mm-hmm. right and is paleontology just bones is that the difference i don't really know what the difference between right, those two yeah, things are that's pretty much is it just but yeah archaeology is, is a subgroup of anthropology okay. right so it's the study of humans okay so anything not human that's preserved in the geologic record paleontology okay interesting yeah yeah that makes sense yeah, don't they? Don't some paleontologists aren't there's like there's like biological anthropologists that right. like there's kind of like an overlap sometimes there, yeah, studying older just... older species. They right. may not be they may not be excavators, but like they have the same sort of. Right. Yeah, it's, I don't know. It's a little. It's sometimes hard to keep those. They all do like they all work yeah. together on the same projects, I think too. But everyone's got like a slightly different angle on it. Yeah, there's a lot of interplay there. Yeah. Because, at what point do you differentiate? You know, if you're going with evolution as as the theory of change, right? Right. Yeah. What's their history? And what's our history? Right. Yeah. yeah it's funny. I, that's funny you bring that up because I remember a friend of mine who studies. Uh, I don't. I think she kind of bounces back and forth between calling herself a biological anthropologist and a primatologist because she studies. Yeah. yeah. Basically, you know, human beings back during the sort of Australopithecine and like you know. Right. Yeah. changeover between like kind of primates to humans and so like does she study humans or does she study primates she kind of studies both she's studying like both sides of that sort of change right. where the those labels came in that we have for ourselves yeah. before yeah <laughs> so so she's really just studying she's just a really historian she's studying like this progression and and records of right. of an animal through this time and also probably studying like what makes that species and what differentiates it from us? And I think right. that that's really right. a big thing in that is is how different are we? Are we really different? Right. Did we fill different niches, and how has that really shifted our our space? Right. Um, and what our rep- modern representations are by comparison? Yeah, because that's a hard thing to say, right? It's yeah. basically trying to dig through 
And that's that's part of the, the difficulty I personally have with with that stuff. And it's not like I I'm talking down on it or anything like that, but it's just wrapping my head around it. Mm-hmm. Of I feel almost like it's writing an alternate history timeline. Mm-hmm. You know, the classic one being if what if we lost World War Two, or right. or something like that, or you know Napoleon never was, or you know what it, right. these big. Or Christopher Columbus's boat sank, or whoever. Right. Even yeah. which obviously is a bad example because he's like the guy who gets the glory, but is not actually important. But you know, any of the rest of them, Cortez, Pizarro, the Vikings. Right. What What if a key piece of history changed? We never expanded to America, or right. like, or it just wasn't then, or right? just wasn't then, right? Because then it would have allowed a different culture to change and adapt mm-hmm. in a different way evolution is kind of the same thing like what if that one didn't die in that one t-rex didn't die because of an infected leg because of a battle injury and then it ended up eating something that was going to be like humans (laughs) yeah right (laughs) there was like one small group this one group of like primates who were kind of like having some human evolution well, ideas and then well i mean they could have been food some possum that would have become humans or something yeah. like that right so pre-primates is, yeah, we were at possum pretty, level i guess or like ate the archaeopteryx that created a certain selective pressure on a certain group of primates or right. <laughs> God, i don't even know if they're around at the same time probably not what do you say Ache, what was it Ache? Archaeopteryx. Yes, the uh, that's the transitional. That's the fossil. one that is not the pterodactyl, but it's similar, right? It's it, like a big it's a gl- reptile it bird. It's a gliding, gliding tree bird. predator bird. Tree predator. Well, it was, and it's it's the transitional fossil. So, did you call it a bird, or do you call it? Oh, I see. A I got you. A dinosaur. Well, what? Right. Ah, yeah. I. You know, that's a yeah. good point. Yeah. Again, right. That midway point. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's like can it's, you not classify it as either because it shares almost equal traits. Well, does it flap? If it doesn't flap, it's not a bird. That's like my whole. <laughs> <laughs> that's where my taxonomy goes. You penguins, know, Brian, penguins, Brian. Penguins fl- No, they flap. They just don't fly. They don't fly. But they no. do flap their arms. <laughs> Have you ever seen arms. them? Okay. You ever seen them get bumped and almost fall? They will flap their arms <laughs> like the Dickens <laughs> to try to not to not go over because once they go over, it's game over. Right. I, okay. <laughs> or do you? Or do you limit? Because gliders. Well, no, so because like lots of things have feathers, right? Like feathers is just a part of biology, just like in terms of like not everything that has scales is a reptile. Like less things might be kind of scaly, right? Like so, but if it flaps, it's a bird. That's my rule. Because things can. There's lots of things that glide that aren't birds. There's snakes that glide, right? They like open up their vertebra. Yeah, and there's there's sugar gliders, and there's you know, but but then again, now that I think about it, bats flap and they're not birds, so. Maybe they're birds. I don't know. <laughs> well, that's Maybe I need to re-examine my taxonomy. you have a couple of different things that are mm-hmm. decided as, and those can go up for debate again, and then things shift around a bit. And, yeah, but you know, now that we have genealogy and stuff like that, that that helps. But again, there's a lot of convergent traits throughout evolution, right? Where, you know, they had very different ancestors but they simply adapted to a very similar area yeah i because learned like I said that vacuum it gets filled yeah that was another thing that i think that's an interesting concept i'm glad you brought that up because i hadn't heard of that whole sort of con- convergent evolutionary traits mm-hmm. for a long time is that a more recent concept that con- that just for background that concept is like because before i, I think people people were like oh they have similar development they must come from a similar ancestor and then it was eventually they were like oh actually sometimes there's other reasons it's environmental or it's dietary and two different because there's a lot of these interesting like mars i think there's a lot of marsupials that are like this Mm. marsupials there's many different like types of marsupials that are like not the same species not near the same species and they didn't even come from anything similar but they developed marsupial traits which is one of the reasons i think that that classification of animals is really fascinating because like they developed all these convergent traits even though to their best of their knowledge a lot of them aren't related you know and a lot of them don't look related obviously you've got like possums and kangaroos like they didn't come right, from yeah. the same thing you know even though they both developed like a marsupial style of reproduction I, yeah i don't know i don't know <clears throat> when that idea yeah i wonder i'm curious to know how new that is 
Because I know for a long time it wasn't a thing. They were just like, oh, it looks the same. It's got to come from the same thing. Yeah. Because um, it was so direct, you know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But it is a good one. Homework. It, Do some homework on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it's a good. It's a good one to know. It's like part of. It's an evolutionary, bigger concept that I think is worth. Yeah. Knowing and thinking about if you're interested, if there you like evolutionary stuff. Really good YouTubers out there. Yeah. That cover a lot of this stuff. Yeah. You got uh, some recommendations? I'm always. I'm always curious to know. Other people's recommendations for like for really learning stuff, like especially in the science. Yeah, yeah. The science field on YouTube. Uh, for paleontology. <clears throat> I really like Trey the Trey the Explainer. Trey the Explainer. Yes. Okay. He he goes in there and he makes it fun, but he's also very very much a stickler for what's accurate. Okay. And he goes in and does the you know the full research, and I think he even includes citations. Cool. And if he doesn't, there's there are, there are others that do. Right. Um. Yeah. So he's a really good one. Cool. Trey the Explainer. Yeah. And it and for like more out. of an intro level thing, PBS. Uh, Eons is a really good one. Uh, isn't that the one you showed me? Probably. I think yeah. you showed me a couple of their segments. Yep. Yeah. Um, and that, that's some really. And Minute Earth is like the really easy. Minute Earth? I haven't yes. even heard of that. Um, they did, They also, I think, are responsible for Minute Physics. Okay. And they do a couple of different ones, but they're kind of cartoon stuff uh, that's. Some of the, the concepts that. Um, are, are like the base concepts for these fields and they talk about you know why is malaria malaria why is it so so much of a problem now when it used to be just in this local area huh. and they just touch on the basic things they don't necessarily give a lot of information but you know a lot of learning to me is doing a lot of sifting and then finding something that's really exciting and digging deeper on it yeah right so yeah, that's true. Especially I, intro, like getting into a topic and really learning something. Yeah, I definitely find that I that's sort of the way that I seem to go with YouTube channels as well. Like I'll I'll sort of I'll bounce between channels via topic that I'm sort of interested in, and then I'll find a channel that I just really resonate with the video, and then I'll sort of go through all their videos. Right. And then I'm just like, okay, this I like this style. Like mm -hmm. I'm really, I feel like I'm picking it up. I feel like it, you know. Whatever it is, maybe because it's funny, or maybe just because they explain things conceptually in a way that I actually feel like I understand. Um, that's cool. Yeah, no, that's that's great. Is there any other? What about geology? Is there like good? Is there good geology YouTubers? I can't. I can't think of. I haven't had a lot of success. Cody's lab has been fun. Cody's lab. Okay. Um, he does it in a, in a pretty fun way because he also does like mineral extraction, elemental extraction of metals from like gold copper silver okay. um from things because he's also a chemistry guy okay um so that one's pretty fun i mean paleontology kind of geology um but apart from that i haven't run into too many others okay i'm trying to think there are some more academic ones that do some demonstrations of like fluid dynamics and hydrology um, and there are some planetary science things. So PBS space goes over some geologic forms, mm -hmm. but you know, on Mars, like, okay, so what do we see there? How do like, what analogs do we pull from, from earth? Mm -hmm. Um, and again, minute earth will cover some of the like tectonic movements and whatnot. And so oh, they're pretty cool. good. Yeah. Um, short snippets, not too in depth. I'm trying to, I'm not sure I can think of many others. Yeah, I didn't know if there's if any that you like really gravitate tips, to. I would love to yeah. love to search out more. Um, yeah, no, I'll ask I'll ask around. I think you know, I, I haven't really done that in a lot of other interviews where I've been like do you have any recommendations of like other cuz sometimes I ask people and this is not just on the podcast, but a lot of times if I'll ask people what their recommended like books are, if mm -hmm. like they're really into something, like what's the first book to read? But also, like, it's just YouTube is such an accessible thing for yeah. people. I got to start getting more, more good YouTube recommendations for yeah. like just educational stuff, you know, that's just consumable. <laughs> yeah, you know, because you discover certain, yeah, you just discover certain people, and that's they find their niche, and then and they I think make great content. And speaking of niches, I think, and I mean, the other stuff that I'm really into is futurism stuff. Right. So like future technology, space occupation, all that. 
And something that isn't discussed a lot there is, you know, if we're going to occupy on one of these surfaces, one of the things that frequently killed off colonies around Earth isn't necessarily a disease, but bad well water. Bad well water. Well, but disease from bad well water, I'm assuming. Sometimes, yeah. Other times, disease from bad well water was more of an indirect thing of, are you taking in a bunch of heavy metals? Hmm. High sa- like high salinity. How do you get better water access? You know, like Jamestown had a salinity problem in their well water because they're going through a drought, and their the backwater side of that was a swamp. Right. Right. Yeah. And so all of their water coming towards the colony was just super salt loaded. And when you have a lot of salt in you, your immune system gets really compromised. You're really lethargic. You don't think as well because you're not well hydrated. Right. Hydration is so important for human survival and most life survival. Right. Right. So that then they had more occurrences of disease and then disease spread because they were tightly packed because they were on this small island. And, you know, all of these compounding effects um, from little things like that, knowing the geology or aerology as it will be mm-hmm. of where you are on Mars. Okay, do you dig into... What rock do you want to dig into, right? Mm-hmm. What are you going to get from that rock towards your industrial side of it? What are How stable is that rock? Um, is there ice around that area? Mm-hmm. Like, are you looking for water ice? We know there's some water in ice form on Mars. So there's some right. liquid water on Mars. There is liquid water? Underground. Okay. I don't know like, if I knew It's like that. a kilometer down is right. the, the one area that we've identified. Okay. Um, Here's an interesting question. There's also seeps <clears throat> stuff like that. Here's a quick question that I don't really know. Is, is there like rock? I mean, I assume this is not true. Is there rock on Mars that is just different? Like that just doesn't exist on Earth? Because I know minerally it's probably the same at a base level. But is there like rock formations like on a macro level that would just be really foreign to things like Well, on surface level, and... I think is where you're going to see your most different <laughs> forms of things. For the most part, it's the same. Um, like do they have tectonic plates? Like do we know how that active. works on Mars? Okay. Not active. They, they, get, they had some that were very... They were active at one point in time, but Mars is significantly smaller, okay. um, and it didn't maintain its its molten core for as long as as far as we know. So it's not molten, it, right? It doesn't, core. and because of that, it doesn't really have a strong magnetosphere either. So, huh. which it contributes to the fact that it has a very weak atmosphere. Right. Right. Um, is magnetosphere that's important for radiation, right? Right, deflecting or, radiation. Yeah, deflecting radiation. So that that's. One of the reasons um, why it's probably going to be in our best interest to live underground, dig underground, yeah. go into lava tubes, stuff like that. Lava tubes, what a great right! And <laughs> ah, I love that. So, and that's the other thing is that some of the some of the tectonic activity that does occur, or earthquake activity that does occur on Mars, is shifts from what's called like a graben. Okay. where a lava tube collapses okay. uh, right? and wh- why it would collapse now as opposed to when it was more technically active I, you know, a meteorite impact something like that might shake it it might just be the, the straw that broke the camel's back Right. Um, so that's something to consider is that these aren't necessarily stable and as we go in and if we heat them up then you know what little ice structures are there you might mobilize groundwater there are some some hazards associated with trying to occupy those spaces or like if we start digging up the land and it hasn't been touched in forever or it's really cold now and it's brittle you know they're all problems that we might encounter um but those grabbins might occur and sinks in and you get the basically trenches so is it better to build on those trenches are those those fault areas stable um or if we're mining someplace and you you hit something that was there's still for whatever reason had a little bit of tectonic like plate energy friction stuck because it was just resting a little bit differently and as things cool they contract right you know, right a number of reasons why these things might you might get minor quakes minor quakes do you think but that's speculation that, on my part I'm not you know I mean I assume that's that that's my, my that's probably but, 
Yeah, I mean, you say it's not your specialty. Is there people? Is there like people who are sort of trying to specialize in that? Yeah, aerologists. Schools and some people that did. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. And they're trying to predict, like, in case. I mean, is the is the Mars? I don't know enough about like the whole Mars thing. Is that is the first, even like, I mean, I assume there's not like a a launch. Is there a launch plan? Is there like a is there like a real date for like the first time we try to send? Nothing concrete. Okay, yeah. yeah. But is that what is the even ballpark for that? Is there a launch window that's like within our um within the, the near future? Because there's not as many from Mars, right? I think it's the idea within the decade. Um, by or early 2030s. I'm trying to remember that one. Okay. I I know like the Artemis project is getting kind of pushed back right now. Okay. And what is the Artemis project? So the Artemis project was the idea that we'd go back to the moon, establish a permanent orbiter, kind of like the ISS, right? Um, and then eventually establish a more permanent moon base. And we being, is this like an Earth thing? NASA. Or is this, an, this is NASA. Okay. Yeah, yeah. This is just Americans. But they were going to do it in cooperation with a bunch of other groups. Right. Well, like like the International Space Station. Right. Yeah. Got it. Um, and some of it was going to be public funded and some of it was going to be kind of privatization and like using those like groups like spacex boeing whatnot blue origin maybe or blue origin to like create the landers and the rovers Mm -hmm. um that is come under some challenge recently by the nasa budgeting like the house nasa budget group um so you know politics it'll be in flux for a while right um i know that blue origin at one point in time stated that that was kind of one of their goals was to get to the moon and the moon base right or at least of interest to them mm-hmm. because if you can set up if there's at least a little bit of gravity we can set up infrastructure to create other things um not going back or like going back to a gravity well for the purposes of, of kind of if we're not going to have something that creates gravity for us we know that our bodies respond to gravity or a lack of gravity um and being on a rocky surface and being able to dig ourselves in a little bit provides a little bit more radiation shielding right. like there are some advantages to using the moon as a staging ground well i've also heard that that it wouldn't some uh some people think that there should be like a base setup that is not with people like that there's just like ro- basically robots yeah. like a production style you know it would be very autonomous well that's probably not the right word but it would be it would be very remote controlled and so like yeah. you wouldn't have to worry about things like people and kind of like having them do shifts and coming back to the planet so they don't have the mm-hmm. low gravity affect them too much and it would be more of like an assembly plant almost like we could send stuff up to the moon and then have a lot of remote controlled stuff that would help create satellites and mining, right? For mining, mm-hmm. mining, mining missions. processing, uh, infrastructure creation for the eventual or, or possible, you know, habitation of humans up there. Mm-hmm. Um, or just creating more, more ships, larger ships that yeah. could send us off to other planets. Right. Oh yeah. That was, that was the thing. That was the thing that I heard is like, they were uh some people have been like well why instead of trying to make you know all these instead of trying to make big ships that we then like fly out of earth's gravity and then other places we just send them up in pieces to the moon which is easy right and then have them assembled there where they don't right. have to deal with that whole escaping earth's gravity thing or why send anything out from earth <laughs> in the first place we're right. not mine it from the moon construct it on the moon send it from the moon right yeah um yeah, I mean, once it's mining and bringing back materials, right, right, and it's it, kind of self-sufficient. And then, do we, or is the more you know, advantageous thing to do instead of trying to use the moon's resources and disrupting what is maybe, you know, the moon's important to us? Right. It has pretty big effects on, and some people hypothesize that it's a pretty big effect on our own molten core. Interesting. And the tidal force is there, and helping plate tectonics you know our mantle is semi-fluid and it's pretty you know at least viscous in some way are there tides in the mantle like is that documented or is it just a theory Uh, that one 
I don't know well enough to, to really speak to. Um, I know from what I've heard from professors and stuff like that, that is one of the theories out there. That's, right. that's cool. I hadn't really thought of that, but it makes sense. I mean, if it's, if it's a big fluid. Right. 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 Or at least semi, semi fluid. Right. right. It's kind of plasticky, like a hot plastic. Yeah. Is that what it's like? Yeah. Right. At least parts of it. I, I mean, kind of picture it as lava, our, but I guess that's not right. Lithosphere actually the more solid crust mm-hmm. that are kind of like that. Um, called myelinite zones, which are really interesting. Wait, these are things that we can see. Yeah, like they're at the surface so level. What we can see um, areas like in kind of ductile zones between plates, where the heat and the pressure compress the rock to the point and and heat it up to the point where it gets very like rapidly um viscous Mm. Uh, okay and it shoots to a certain point and then it goes the rock that's in the area and depending upon what minerals are in the area and what elements are in the area this temperature pressure zone kind of can go to a different maximum in different places Mm. um but once things are mostly liquid again the system kind of allows for reorganization of a bunch of different elements into a much more solid rock and it will shoot back to a solid really quickly um so it kind of if you think of it on a graph you you kind of see like thorns coming out with that exponential curve and it'll snap back once they're you know they're the zero point as it approaches zero oh yeah and it'll shoot back to solid and then it'll kind of curve out again and then do that. Huh. And we hope to understand that better. There, there is, we see modern like surface analogs mm-hmm. where we like, we see rocks as they were exposed to that area and, and like what minerals are present, how large the grain size is. Mm-hmm. And those zones are really important for understanding tectonic activity. But we've also seen some of those zones drilling down through a couple of processes or through a couple of things. Um, But there are some really cool (sighs) projects that are proposed. Like there was one in Russia while way back when, I guess now almost as far as geology is concerned, but it, it provided a lot of data because they tried to drill to the mantle, but they tried to do it on the continental crust, which I think at that point was several tens of kilometers thick right? in that area. And they weren't able to do it. Um, As opposed to what, starting in the ocean? Yeah, starting in the ocean where it it can be significantly thinner, like 17 kilometers thick. You have to do it from a rig up on top of the ocean. Yeah. Um, Wait. So did they hit the mantle? Was that? So- yeah. They didn't. They okay. didn't. But they they, they, they saw a lot of interesting. some of these zones where like there was shift and like the bit, bit itself was experiencing things that inca- like that was part of the, what shut it down was right. that it was encountering these temperature pressure gradients that were problematic to the rigidity of the the drill bit itself. You know, these are. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's probably an understatement. Because, <laughs> they because were freaking as pressure increases, you also have a, a temperature increase too. Right. To some right. degree. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. I forget that. What is it? How, how quickly does the pressure increase when you go down to the sorry. ground? Uh, I mean, if they're, I mean, if, if they're digging down the kilometers. Really. Oh yeah. Um, because the different rock has different densities. Mm. Um, yeah. I, I don't know that one off the top of my head. Well, I don't know if that's yeah. I guess if it's it probably is so variable depending on the the substance. I mean, you you can calculate it out. There are equations for it. Right. Um, huh. But that's also gravity fluctuates slightly. Right. Around so because of what's underneath that then too. Right. Um, yeah, and I mean the the entire idea of. The crust is like ice cubes floating around. Right. You know, you, you 
ice cubes actually you see a surprising amount of them above compared to rock because i mean rock is significantly more dense relative right to to the fluid that it's in mm-hmm. um i want to say ice cubes a solid mineral too floating on its liquid form right, right. <laughs> in some ways right um <laughs> That's such a funny visual. Yeah. That's so it's completely accurate. Yeah. Yeah. It's just rock, hard rock floating in soft rock. That's yeah, just yeah, pretty much. <laughs> wow. um, so fascinating. But I think it's something like seventeen percent, seventeen to twenty-one percent, something like that, of of the overall object rests above the surface of the water, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas I think from the average continental granite or something like that is it's like 11 percent i know i know that the but there is enough of a difference too that like the uh seafloor basalts actually their density is significantly heavier so they rest at a lower level and they're also less like less thick large um so like the continents are these giant icebergs. Wow. You know, they can be like 70, 70 kilometers thick. Wow. Right? Yeah. That's crazy. It's, it's also it's also crazy to think that you look at Mount Everest. Mm. That's maybe 11% of its overall mass. <laughs> right. Or overall wow, yeah. volume, right? Well, that is crazy to think. And then even that, yeah, I mean, the size, the size, when it comes to the geology, yeah. you know, of the planet, the size, I mean, it's, I can't even, I can't even fathom that because like, right, Mount Everest then is 11% of its whole, whole size. And then the crust is like this tiny piece of paper on the outside, you know, relative to the entire earth is just like right. this tiny little thin eggshell. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and Did that's what's solid. Right. Know? And, but, yeah. it, but compared to us, you know, that we're what? One and a half, two meters, if, if big. Yeah. <laughs> we're not, we're nothing. Yeah, we're nothing. It's yeah. good. Yeah. It's good stop, to remember stop that. feeling so good about being six feet tall. That's really what you gotta say. Because <laughs> you are point zero 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 one percent of. That's why I like the mountains. Crust. Yeah. You know, I, it makes me feel less weird for being tall. Um. <laughs> <laughs> you finally feel small. Yeah. <laughs> That's how you got in geology. Cool. Yeah. Dig it. All right. Well, I think you know. I think. Uh, I think we got to go, but that is great, man. Thanks for coming by. Thanks yeah. for thanks for talking awesome. about space rocks and game theory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My three big interests. Yes, yeah. <laughs> your three big interests and skills. All right. Yeah. Uh, I hope you get to do this. We get to do this again soon. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks again to Alden Goodwin for taking an hour out of his day to come and sit down with me. I really appreciate it. If you're interested in conversations like these, Alden is one of the daily contributing members to the Discord server that I manage. You can learn more about that at allbriandoes.com slash discord. If you'd like to get in contact with me about working on projects, you can find me at allbriandoes.com or support me on my Patreon page at patreon.com slash allbriandoes.